Steve Jobs enjoys a mythic reputation as a technology and business genius. After his death, it often seems like he dreamed up products like the iPhone and iPad from whole cloth, single-handed. But a new book by the former CFO of Pixar, Lawrence Levy, paints a very different picture of Jobs at work. In Levy's book, To Pixar and Beyond, out this week, Jobs is portrayed as very human and vulnerable. He doesn't have all the answers, and he makes tons of mistakes. He doesn't scream and yell. He's not the tyrant we expect him to be. It's one of the first books I've read that realistically details how Jobs worked, and it's surprisingly relatable. Plus, there's a whole chapter devoted to a whiteboard meeting. My name is Leander Caney. I'm the editor and publisher of Cult of Mac, a blog about Apple, and the New York Times best-selling author of some books about technology, most recently a biography of Johnny Ive, Apple's head designer. Caney's Corner is a new weekly podcast. Every week I'll be interviewing a guest about the world of Apple. I've got some great guests lined up, including a bunch of ex-Apple staffers who will talk about their work and working with Steve Jobs. I've also got people like an iPhone case maker who'll spill the beans on the competitive and shabby world of case making. Being first to market is worth millions of dollars, and these guys do some crazy things to get the specs of Apple's upcoming devices to get the jump on the competition. I'll also talk to app makers and IT guys and recyclers. It's a big Apple world out there, and there's tons of great, fascinating stories to tell. Anyway, well, thanks so much uh, for joining me, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank you very much. And you too, by the way. Congratulations on, on, on your efforts over the years. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I, I, I really enjoyed your book. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I think um, uh, it, it, uh, it offers, it's, it's really an unusual book, to be honest, isn't it? I mean, I've never read anything quite like it. It, it really gets into the nitty-gritty. Uh, it does, yeah. I'll I'll, um, I'll take that as a compliment. I you know I think I, you know I aim to get into the nitty gritty and, but to write it kind of like an adventure story. You know I said to my agent like I'm going to make an adventure out of an IPO because that's <laughs> because that's what it was and um, and so you know I'd love the readers to be able to read it that way. No, not with me looking back. No sort of making wise comments about the great things we did back then, but actually taking that journey with me. Yeah, right. Um, and that was the goal when I sort of set out to write it. So let's back up a second and, and explain to the to the listeners um, who you are and what the book is about. So, um, can uh, you know, tell me, tell me what exactly what happened. Oh, well, I, it was... Um, I had a career kind of in Silicon Valley, so I was a lawyer, business executive, and I ended up in 1994, I was chief financial officer of a, of a pretty well-known company out here called Electronics for Imaging, and we had taken that company public, and it's still around, actually. And I was just sitting in my office, and my phone rang, and it was, I picked up the phone, and it was Steve Jobs on the other end of the line, and he literally said, um, hey, Lawrence, I read about you in a magazine a couple of years ago. I thought we might work together someday, and I have this little company I want to tell you about and I immediately thought that he was talking about Next because Next had been in the news a lot back then and not in the best of ways because it had shut down its hardware business and you know its reputation had um, had a lot of uh, criticism around it and I thought well maybe he wants help turning Next around and uh, but then he told me that company was Pixar and I was really like Pixar Uh, I'd I'd heard of Pixar but I didn't even really know what it was (laughs) right and this, of course, is before the, any of the movies, um, before any of its its huge success. Yes, it was it about was, a year before the original, the first Toy Story came out. And it had been around for, what, what about 10 years at that point? It, it had started life as... Um, uh, 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 um, oh my how am I forgetting his name? Yeah. The Star Wars director. <laughs> That's right. It started out as the computer graphics division at Lucasfilm. Right, uh, yeah. yeah. And... Um, uh, uh, Ed Catmull and Alvy Ray Smith founded that division, and then George Lucas decided to spin it off, and then Steve bought that from him around 1986, and then Steve became the owner of the company. And he bought it because um, George needed to raise some money for his divorce. Is that right? You know, I don't know. Actually, I don't. I don't know that the exact reasons why it was being spun off. Uh, you know, I'd heard he just didn't want to continue investing in that technology, and it was taking quite a bit of money to to keep it going. And so Steve had been propping it up for for a good decade. Yeah, uh, and. Uh, pouring his own money into the uh, company to keep it afloat, and can you describe, you know, what sort of what you, know, what you found when you when you when you got there? Well, you know, I found that a company that was um, sort of very much sort of on the edge of not making it at all. It had burned through about 
uh, $45 million of Steve's sort of personal money. Uh, he was still covering the payroll out of his personal checkbook at the end of every month. Uh, none of the businesses it was in were profitable or really had any sign of profitability. Uh, and it was even the company itself was located out in Point Richmond, which from the point of view of Silicon Valley was almost like the middle of nowhere. And it was in this sort of old dumpy building. And so you would kind of walk into Pixar and you'd kind of go, wow, what is this? Uh, that's what I found initially. Right. And they, they uh, and, St- and why, why did Steve recruit you? What, what did he want you to do? Well, he wanted me to basically figure out how to take the company public, but that involved not just the aspects of taking the company public, but figuring out the business strategy for the company. And so the first thing was to figure out the strategy, and then that would lead to what he hoped would be an IPO. And the IPO was because he he wanted to stop uh, propping the company up with his own funds? or Definitely, I think two things. I mean, certainly he wanted to stop propping the company up, no no question about that. And that would certainly be a mechanism to stop that. But I think also having an IPO, you know, was a would be a sign of his own comeback. He he'd had a string of uh, failures really in the previous ten years. You know, at, at Apple with the the Lisa Macintosh and the original. I mean, with the Lisa computer and the original Macintosh, and then after Apple, the Pixar Imaging computer and the next computer had all been written off. None of those machines had made it in any way, and I think that the possibility of a Pixar IPO also sort of represented as a, a statement. It would sort of be a be a comeback for him. So I think it had both financial and 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 non-financial kind of. Uh, motivations and 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 so then when you got there, you know, the first part of the book is a, is a, a fascinating dissection of of the, of the state uh, that you found Pixar in, which was one of um, not disarray, but it wasn't definitely wasn't going going anywhere, was it? I, not at all. I, I I think I in the book I make an analogy to a to a starving artist. So lots of talent, but no momentum at all, and that's not a very fun place to be. So even though they the, the teams at Pixar were doing this amazing work. They were frustrated by the lack of commercial momentum and viability at the same time. So you had these two two things going on at the same time. They were making beautiful showcase um, short videos, right? They, they just won an, uh, an Oscar for the um, Luxo Jr.? Yeah, they had well, Luxo Jr. was some time before, and they had they had they had previously won an Oscar for Tin Toy, but they had made these four or five um, very renowned films, short films, that showcased the possibility of computer animation, but there was no commercial, uh, or there's no economy associated with those short films mm-hmm, at all, right. and then they had taken on this this project called Toy Story, which was being funded by Disney. Right, and but even that looked problematic. So when you start to dig into the into the contract they'd signed with Disney, um, oh yeah, I mean it, was, it looked disastrous. It's funny, you know, like sometimes to join a startup you need a certain amount of naivete. And even though I was a lawyer, you'd think I would have understood that that Disney contract before I took the job. Um, when I did finally understand what it meant, because it's written in this really arcane language of entertainment law, which I didn't at the time have experience with. And when I finally got in there and understood it, I, that was probably one of the the, the darkest moments of my career, because <laughs> I, was, I was really convinced that there was just no way out of this, and I had just made a big mistake. Right, because you just given up a good career, and you joined this, this startup, and, you, and then you realized this is like two or three months in right that yeah this is two or three months in and i realized that everybody you know people are saying why would you want to go to pixar why would you want to go work for steve jobs because he in some ways been sort of written off by a lot of people at that point uh, and so it was like oh my goodness they were all right and so <laughs> i i had this uh and that's why i try to convey in the book is that we can look back at it and, and laugh now it is kind of comical looking back but at the time it's anything but comical it really yeah. was a was a kind of a difficult moment well that's what i enjoyed about the book because it, it steps you very clearly through um, all of these things that you discovered and, and how problematic the whole situation was and how how troublesome it was going um, to be to dig Pixar out of this this hole and, and then how you figured it out and how you and Steve figured it out. And I think it, it presents a really nice portrait of Steve Jobs too, you know, that you don't often see. It, it belies, you know, his public image. Yes. Um, do, do you know, what was it? Uh, it you describe somebody who is very rational, who um, liked to talk through problems and 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 figured out solutions by talking to people, basically. 
Is that a fair description, do you think? I think it's a f certainly a fair description of my experience. Uh, you know, we had what was almost like a 12-year dialogue um, that was just there. It was sort of constantly in motion. It was always invigorating. It was never sort of one person, you know, sort of lording over the other, or it was just this open dialogue. I mean, he, he had... Um, he had his opinions and, and he would argue strongly for the things that he thought, but he was interested in getting to the sort of the right answers, the answers that worked. And um, sometimes you had to have sort of patience and just sort of hang in there with the discussion. But uh, he, it was a very invigorating discussion and collaboration. And that that's one of the reasons, you know, there were several reasons I wrote the book, but, you know, one of them was because I felt this dimension had just been uh, glossed over in all the um, in all the things that have been written about him. <laughs> yeah, in most accounts, you know, it's sort of, um, you get this impression that he, he, you know, it's his way or the highway, that he has all the ideas, that people are um, working for him. And, and, and as, as you mentioned at the end of the book, a lot of it, I think, has to do with his relationship with the press and, and the way that he... Um, Often hogged the limelight and 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 didn't share the limelight with his with his co-workers. But I thought it, it was a fascinating insight into into the way that he really worked. And of course, the, one of the other interesting things too was that at Pixar he was very very much the absentee landlord. Yes, certainly before I came along, he had definitely been the absentee land landlord. And then and part of the challenge, part of the thing that we had to do is reconnect him with the company because taking a company like that public meant that. Uh, he, you couldn't be quite so absentee. You know, the, the, the world would need to see that this was important to him and meant a lot to him. And so he had to, uh, you know, reconnect with the company. And that uh, that process or the arc of that happening is an important theme in the book too. And it's something that that you know really worked beautifully. He went from being a sort of absentee landlord to this sort of beloved protector of the company and that happened over a period of years and I think just that was really important to what happened at Pixar and what happened with Steve. Well you describe early on that um, the Pixar employees were had a very different <laughs> view of him. They weren't happy with him at all. Right. At the beginning, that's right. It was when he had been for many years in this absentee landlord mode and they were fearful of him. They were fearful that the rumors of the Pixar is a very familial culture. It's a very, you know, it's a place of uh, dialogue and conversation and hugs. Um, it's a, it's really a, a wonderful environment, and they were fearful that he would change that or inter interrupt with that that culture that they had carefully created, and they were upset over some of the economic issues that had to do with stock options and not having stock options, and because that stock options is sort of the means for a payday in a way, and many of the people there had stuck it out for five, ten years with very little to show for it, and I think they had built up some resentments over that, that I sort of encountered those crosswinds very quickly when I started. Well, he'd been promising, hadn't he, for, for many, many years that he would give um, the people stock options, but, but had never fulfilled that promise. Right. I, I think at one time there was a plan, and then and then that got disbanded in a reorganization. So it had never, it had not been fulfilled. There were no options in place and, when I got there. Right. And to, and to actually make a stock option plan work, he, he would have had to he had to give up some of his options because he was the one hundred percent owner. Yes, he was a hundred percent owner. So yes, it's exactly right. Every option that went to an employee or into the stock option pool, as it's called, uh, would would literally sort of come out of of, of his pool. And that challenge was made even harder when you normally in Silicon Valley you put a stock option plan in at the beginning, and so you're dealing with a pool of options that's designed for a small startup with a small number of employees. Pixar had about 150 people, so when you put a plan in midstream like that, it's much more challenging. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, he, I think uh, he obviously felt that having uh, propped the company up for, for all those years with, with 45 million, 50 million dollars of his own money. Um, he wanted to maximize his payday. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. That's, so, a, that, that, that's a big investment in a startup by any venture capital standard. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, though. You know, one of the things, I mean, uh, it goes against his image as, you know, being decisive and, and uh, the sort of technology seer. Why did, he, why, did he, why did he, you know, sit on it for so long? 
That's a really good question. I think Steve just, he's not someone to give up. I, I think that he didn't do a lot of things after he originally left Apple. He basically did Next Computer, you know, in an effort to make a change in the workstation market. And he made this investment in Pixar. And that's all. He didn't, as far as I know, he didn't do other businesses. He, he wasn't a venture capitalist. He just focused on the projects, a very, very narrow number of projects. And Pixar was one of them. And I think that was his nature. His nature is to you know, stick with it uh, and with the belief, the hope, the dream that something will come of it. I think that's what drove him to do it. I do think he came close to giving it up. I, I wasn't there, but in 1991, when they closed down the, the hardware business, I think at that point, Steve might have sold Pixar to a suitor had there been one. Um, but uh, but it didn't, and so he ended up sticking with it. Mm -hmm. Right, and of course, they, tr they tried uh, several things, didn't they, uh, over the years, and... And when you got there, they were still trying three things, right? They were they were making commercials. They were doing some work for yes, several things. I mean, they were they were making commercials. Uh, they were making the RenderMan software. Uh, there was Toy Story going on. There was short films, and so there was this kind of collection of activities within the company. Oh, and and uh, uh, your biggest contribution was to figure out that you should they, that they should drop making the commercials, they should drop the render man, stop selling that, and they should concentrate solely on the movie-making side of the business. It was. I, it was kind of a conclusion by default because, <laughs> uh, I, as I recount in the story, I looked at all of these businesses, and, and as I began to understand them, I began to see that they didn't have any possibility of scaling in any way that a company could think of taking itself public or even building a company that would grow and be a viable entity. So they just weren't businesses that had any uh, hope or possibility. And that, of course, left animated entertainment. And that's the worst business to consider going into. And so it, it was like, and so I fought that. It was like, no, you know, you know, no one's really succeeded ever at building an independent animated entertainment company. Even Walt Disney, who who did it starting in 1939 with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and then he had you know Dumbo and 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 a few movies. But even he couldn't sustain a, a corporation as an independent animated feature film company. So he had to diversify, and he went into film distribution and um, and theme parks and television and other businesses. So there wasn't even a model for a company that that had done that. So I I came to that conclusion sort of you know sort of painfully. <laughs> <laughs> right, but that but but by that that point, of course, you you know you and everyone else's back, backs were up against the walls. So yeah. there's nothing to do but go ahead. Yeah, I know. Sometimes it helps. Like if something's your only shot, and you're absolutely sure that it's your only shot, then you just got to put everything you possibly can into making that shot work. Right. Yeah. So for that first period, you um, you know the, the company started to concentrate on just doing the, the, the their first movie, Toy Story, which um, was was bedeviled with all kinds of problems um, and. Uh, uh, production um, uh, yes. uh, headaches, but also you know trying to prep prep for an IPO as well, and not knowing when to time the IPO before the movie comes out or after the movie comes out. So there's a lot of discussion with Steve about the uh, the, the, the timing of the, and the yes. strategy for doing that, and also for dealing with Disney as well. Well, yes, the the in terms of the IPO, we were pretty much on on our own, and there was a lot of discussion with. Steve and with investment bankers. I mean, in my mind, it was the risk was so enormous that the risk of doing an IPO, even if it were possible, I wasn't even sure it was possible, but the risk of doing an IPO before Toy, Toy Story came out were enormous. Um, because if the company, if the film didn't do well, then the IPO either wouldn't go, or the, the initial investors would be really disappointed, and you know Pixar's all the momentum of the company would could be lost in in one moment, and so th those were risks that that I thought uh, the company shouldn't take on. <laughs> right. So how how did you decide what, uh, the time of the IPO? Well, that it, it, it's kind of a, a, a collective judgment that goes between, you know, myself and Steve, Pixar's board of directors, Pixar's investment bankers, uh, and uh, and lawyers. And so, you know, collectively, I would say we all looked at this and and said that that you know the, the sh there would be a there would be an opportunity after Toy Story comes out, and after that, you know, the next opportunity could be a long way off because the next product would be a long way off. And so that was the sense that we had was to do it um, uh, after Toy Story came out. Right, yeah, yeah, because at that, of course there was about 150, 
50 employees when yeah. you joined. And, and so they were working on Toy Story. They'd been working on Toy Story for, for a fair while. But the plan was to do, um, you, you were in a contract with Disney to do three movies. Um, but the pipeline, you could only do one movie every three years. Yes, or even one every four years. It takes four years to make one of those films. And um, so if you just have one crew, then you know, you're know you kind of looking at a film every four years. And so, and that's where Pixar was at that moment. So part of the work and the analysis was how to increase the rate of production and maintain creative quality. So that was a, the, maybe the, the biggest challenge of all at that time. Right, and of course that was a big reason for the IPO, wasn't it? To try to raise the money to finance the movies, uh, to hire staff, um, to, to expand the capability and, and get movies out more for, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a, a quicker schedule. Definitely, part of the reason for those funds was to be able to increase the the scale, the, the rate at which Pixar could make films. It's funny because it's it, it you know it doesn't read like a real high wire act. You know, it's it's sort of um, <laughs> it was uh, very much made you know flying by the seat of the pants. You know, and, and making things up as you, as you kind of went along um, with very high stakes. Um, yes, I mean I think that. It, we were, but we had, you know, there was a kind of a discipline to it in a way. There were, there were sort of two sides to the work we were doing. One was qualitative, and the other was quantitative. So qualitatively, we were learning about the film business. It's funny looking back, but Steve and I really didn't know anything about the entertainment business. So we had, we were. Um, uh, products of Silicon Valley. We knew software, hardware, semiconductor chips, all of that, but entertainment we didn't. And and so we would shuttle back and forth to Hollywood and, and learn and piece together the sort of the elements of that business. And then quantitatively, we were building these, and I tell a couple of stories about this because some of them are funny, but we were building this quantitative view of what it would take to build Pixar and so both of those things were were happening at the same time and eventually they kind of revealed the picture and the strategy that we needed to go for. Right yeah there was a, you know very much in the book you, you get this impression that you're learning as you go along and, yeah. and, and uh, you were looking for people to help you people in Hollywood yep. um, and uh, reading everything you could lay your hands on and then finding also that um, Hollywood is very secretive and very conservative yep. isn't it? it it doesn't want to take risks it doesn't want to do new stuff um, and it's also very sort of stingy with its with with information yes uh, we i mean we encountered all of this and especially back then you know it's it's like some pixar it wasn't a big name it wasn't any name in hollywood actually so it wasn't like doors flew open uh, but <laughs> um but eventually you know we worked our way in and we we met a couple of studio heads and we met a couple of the heads of like joe roth over at disney and we met some of the kind of lawyers and bankers there and and we really listened to them and they began to sort of educate us and we we, we shaped this picture together and we realized that there were some things about hollywood that were really important to to pixar but other things we wanted to make maintain Pixar's culture or, or what you might call the Silicon Valley way of doing things. And so Pixar was really a hybrid between these two cultures. Yeah, it, it was interesting. I noticed there was a lot of parallels between the way that Pixar worked and, and the way that Apple works, um, it primarily being giving creative control to a very small team. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking, um, uh, reading about John Lasseter and Ed Catmull and, and the creative, and the, the, the creative t uh, John Lasseter's creative team at Pixar, the way that they worked sounded very much like the the design team at the industrial design team at Apple under Johnny Ive, and how they explored um, uh, the products that they're making and how they design things. Yes, you know that's a that's a really good point, and obviously you you've studied a lot how the design team worked at Apple, but it was similar at Pixar. It was, and from a, a point of view of running a business and from an executive point of view, it's a that's a very difficult, a very risky decision to let a design team or in this case a story team um, give them that level of trust. Um, because you kind of want to get in there and worry about things like production costs and production timing and what happens if you change your mind in the middle of a story because it's really expensive to make design or story changes late in the game. Right. So it's a big leap of faith to trust a team like that. But I think in the case of uh, Pixar and the case of Apple, you can see the results when that works well. <laughs> well, you describe very well, you know, that, uh, that one of the beauties of, of taking that approach is that uh, if you're making like a live action movie um, you are c 
committed to what you shoot, or the director's committed to what they've shot, they can't go back and make changes. But with an, in an, an, an animated movie, they can, even very late in the game, make big, even big creative changes because um, they don't have to go back and reshoot it all. They can just reanimate it. Or, you, it's or, you know, true. Shoot. You can. But it's, it, you can do it, but it's very expensive. And so the later you are in the in the story in the production process, the more expensive and you know it can be it can be millions or tens of millions of dollars to make those changes, but uh, you do have the the luxury to do it if it's not working. <laughs> It reminded me, you know, of, uh, of, of uh, you know, Steve uh, said that uh, every product that Apple had ever made uh, at one point, you know, had to be stopped and, and they, they stopped and restarted over. And when they restarted it, they found that there was a much better product sort of hiding there waiting to be discovered. Yes. Uh, and, and it sort of seemed that, the, uh, you know, didn't, didn't Pixar have the same, the yes. same pro- you know, there was always a huge problem with it. I think story. if you talk to Ed Catmull and John Lasseter, they'd probably tell you exactly the same thing for every Pixar film. Uh, it's like... Uh, Ed sometimes used to say that it's like um, being on a train going down the railroad tracks, but in front of you there's no track. <laughs> and so, um, right. so you have to lay the track in front of you, and then you know it's very easy to lay it in a circle. And so, um, and so you realize, oh, you know, that didn't take us where we wanted to go. And uh, I think you know Pixar has virtually legislated into its process that there'll be these crisis moments in in every project that it does, and and it's it's learned to navigate its way through those. But it's never easy, though. It's it's right. never easier than the previous time. <laughs> it's it's all about the process, right? So, and and look at the outcome. You know, just like Apple, it's be, it was a it was a decade of one hit after another. Yeah. Not one foot wrong, and I think the same thing happened at Apple too. You know, when when Steve came back, it was one hit product after another, not one, and you know, very very few missteps. Yeah, no, th- but, yeah. And you describe very well how that is antithetical to the way that Hollywood works. In the big Hollywood studios, they'll fund, um, you know, uh, what is it? You know, sometimes dozens of movies a yes. year. And they're hoping that the hits will pay for the misses. Yes. And so, out of ten or twelve movies, only two will be will hit big. But they'll cover the losses for all the others. That's right. I mean, the the classic Hollywood model is, and you know, from a business point of view, it's easily under, understandable. Their filmmaking is so risky that they have to have ways to sort of take the risk out, and so they have a couple of strategies for that. One strategy is the one that you mentioned, which is that make a slate of films, release a slate, and then hope that some of them will be a hit. That's a little bit like the venture capital model. Yeah, in right. A way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, It's the same. Mm-hmm. Another strategy they have, especially in the last few years, is to uh, make films that already have established. Brands, <laughs> yeah, uh, and so, so sequels you, and sequels and using characters that are already. In other words, it's much riskier to bet on an original character than it is on a beloved character that has a built-in audience. And so, those are risk-reducing strategies where Pixar's focus. Uh, it's always tried to keep its focus on original content. It did, of course, get into sequels as well, but it still was always trying to do that original content. And I think that's that requires a lot of risk taking and courage to to keep your focus on that. Hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, it's not like it's not as though you had a lot of choice, though. Uh, really, at the end of no. those early days. Yeah. <laughs> right. As I say, a strategy by default. This is our shot. We have to take it. <laughs> And um, so the, uh, the middle section of the book uh, is is um, is equally fascinating. You know, um, all of this stuff comes together very very quickly to, uh, to, uh, around the release of Toy Story. Um, and you know, one of the things I didn't uh, that I that I thought, and I don't want to, how do I phrase this? You, you don't describe that you had. Well, I don't think you, I don't remember getting the feeling that you knew that Toy Story was going to be successful. In fact, you were very worried that it wasn't going to be successful. I think I, that I, yeah. Is that because you hadn't seen the whole movie? Well, uh, no, yet? not at all. I mean, um, no. It's it, I, the reason for that is because it's the level of success. So much here, you know, depends on how you define success. But the level of success that Pixar required in order for its business model to work was staggering. You know, uh-huh. It's it's like saying you know like uh, you know you may have a great baseball player but you know will he hit a home run every time he goes up to the plate? Well, that would be a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that was the the fear that Toy Story could enjoy some level of commercial success, it could enjoy critical success, audiences could like it, but we were going for you know grand slam home run, and that's something that's you know really hard to to. To know, no matter how much you love your your product, it it had to hit. It had to um, score at the box office uh, 
somewhere in the in the region of the of the two or three most successful animated movies of all time. So. Yeah, that at that point in time, you know, our, our models and we were very open with this. So and so we knew how well it had to do. And you know, some would say, oh, if it did fifty or seventy-five million dollars in the box office, you know, that would be successful. There'd be nothing wrong with that. It'd be very proud of it, but it wouldn't. Um, make Pixar a viable company and so we we were going for levels that were much higher than that that, that was hard yeah. to predict right and also yeah that, and it made you kind of worried about it was how, how how confident was Steve about that level of success or I think well you know on the one hand Steve certainly understood well you know what it was that we were going for and what it was we needed to do uh, and Steve is you know he was a, someone that is always looking forward and always you know believing that uh, we've got the the best product and that and and he believes in the shot and so you know he's sort of ever optimistic on, on that front. <laughs> Right, and and was that the same true for Ed and um, uh, John Lasseter? Yeah, I mean, I think the whole team really. I mean, the, the the spirit at Pixar is, you know, we put everything we have into our products, our films. We just give it our absolute best shot. We put it out there, and we believe in what in in, in what we're doing. But and, you, yeah. So, so, but you needed to make it like I think fifty to one hundred million in order to to be able to finance the next three years in order, you know, to make it the next movie. We needed Toy Story, yes, to do more than that, to do, you know, needs to do like 140, 150 million dollars in the box office to give us the leverage that we needed to keep going. Okay, and 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 uh, so you described uh, really well, you know, the the the, um, the premieres and then the opening uh, weekend, um, which was um, on was it November twenty second? Yes, just just before Thanksgiving. Yes, nineteen ninety five. Right, yes. mm-hmm. and um, can you describe what happened? Well, on the premiere down, well, the premiere down in um, it was it was down in Hollywood at the El Capitan Theater, and and uh, a lot of, it was a family event, and so a lot of us went down there with our families. <laughs> For my family, it was like um, the whole every minute of it was just a treat. You know, it was like they couldn't, my kids couldn't believe they were going to a premiere in Hollywood. Never mind an animated feature film premiere of, of Toy Story, and so we were just sitting there ogling, you know, all the people that came in, you know, Michael Eisner and some of the, you know. Um, Tim Allen and the people that were in the film were, were coming in, so it was just really exciting. And then when they played the film, I mean, at the end of the closing credits, you know, you could feel that the the, the audience was just in amazement of what they had just seen. You know, they really were in disbelief. I mean, this is really seeing the first animated feature film in 3D, um, computer animated feature film in history, and it it really delivered. So the the sort of cheering and clapping went on for a long time. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I remember uh, seeing the movie that 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 fall when it came out, and, yeah. and being really blown away. I took a, my my young kids to see it, and, and did not expect that I would be more entertained. Yes. <laughs> than they were. Exactly. It, yeah. It truly is a is a, is a masterpiece. Yeah. But w- what happened when on the opening? So the premiere was a few days before it opened wide. Yes. And you guys were all on tenterhooks. Yeah. So you're watching the box office numbers, hoping that you could project out from that first weekend's take how much the film would eventually earn. Absolutely. And remember, there's no, when you say watching the box office numbers, there, there's no internet back then. There's no, you know, log in to uh, um, box office mojo or something and, and, uh, <laughs> and, and track what's happening. You know, this is information that sort of gets passed through fax and phone calls. And so we had a, a kind of a daisy chain of faxes and phone calls set up to get this information as, as quickly as we could. And so, you know, I, I, I was literally with my family as that information came in. And so we were all calling each other and, and celebrating. And, and what it essentially meant, really, for Pixar was game on. It, it meant that we have our shot. Those that that initial weekend, you could project out ultimate box office. Even if you were off by a little bit, you could see it would have the level of success that would give us the shot that we wanted. So that was a real turning point. And and you you were hoping for what ten or fifteen million? Yeah, I mean minimum? for that opening weekend, you know, we had fun talking about it. Ten, fifteen, eighteen million. You know, I think I was at ten to fifteen. Steve was hoping for fifteen to twenty. Um, and um, those numbers, we you know we would have still had a shot with it, with numbers like that. But as I describe in the story, uh, getting numbers like that was no small task. And especially when you're releasing a technology that's never been seen before, so you can't be sure how audiences will react to it. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And the, what, the numbers came in at what? It was like, I think the opening weekend was 38 million, so it was almost <laughs> double what we were sort of our, our, our hopeful range. So it was huge. It was just, um, it was really exciting. We, we, we couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. I'll bet, I'll bet. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. So yeah, I mean, a huge, huge monster hit. And it turned out to be the biggest movie of the year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It um, did, yeah. And so then, but then you, you, you moved on to the IPO, which was going to happen a, a couple of weeks later, is yeah. that right? So you had done the roadshow by this time? We had done the roadshow uh, by this time. And and so then is a question of what they call kind of pricing a deal and, you know, trying to get a deal out and get getting the stock into the hands of investors. And so that was the, the attention of, of, of the next couple of weeks. And, um, and yeah, so that, that, that's what happened next. <laughs> And again, you describe very well all of the discussions, all of the um, the, the uh, tr- trying to price it correctly. Because if you price it, uh, it's very complicated, isn't it? If you price it too high, you'll turn off investors. If you price it too low, you won't raise the money you need. Exactly. It's it's very much uh, and and the the um, and, and it's a mind-boggling amount of work to tr- to, to uh, the, the bankers do to dig into the business and the risks. Yes. And, and of course, Pixar's was was particularly risky. No one had ever seen anything like this before. Um, there were no good models, um, and this 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 onerous contract that you had with Disney right. um, was was um, was a big boat anchor. Yep. It was scaring off a lot of it. There. In yes. fact, your first two investment banks were scared off by this. Um, but of course, you know it's funny as well. In the book, it, it it comes together very very quickly. So you have this monster opening weekend. Toy Story is a huge success, and then when um, Pixar stocks opens up on the Nasdaq stock exchange. Um, it opened at, at uh, what, what, what did you price it at? We originally? priced it at, at 22, but it had sort of jumped up into the 30s virtually immediately. Yeah, and it closed and it ended the day at like 39, yes. 40 bucks. Mm-hmm. And so Steve obviously was very pleased by this. Right? Yes. <laughs> what did he say? Well, you know, I, I, I think he was ecstatic. I mean, that number, that particular number, was sort of made him a billionaire on paper, at least. And and um, there was just a, a a sort of jubilance in the air. You know, we were sort of high fiving there at the at the investment banks. And and I mean, we also all understood that that is also just. I mean, it was a it was a moment of celebration, but also a moment in time. You know, the thing about going public is it's really a beginning not an end it's then you know when you put stock in the hands of investors for those investors it's the beginning and they're looking at what you're going to do yeah. you know, over the coming years and so right. you you but at least we we definitely enjoyed the moment but we also understood that you know the work was ahead of us this episode of Canis corner is supported by tunnel bear an award-winning service that gives you fast and private access to the internet TunnelBear is a virtual private network, or VPN, that guards your privacy and security while online. A VPN is a must-have for any public internet usage. If you log on at a coffee shop or the airport, it's crazy to do it without a VPN. TunnelBear works on all your devices, computers, tablets and phones. It's by far the easiest to use and best designed VPN I've encountered. It's so easy to use, my mom, who's in her mid-70s, routinely uses it to watch TV in the UK. She lives here in San Francisco and she uses it to get a UK IP address, which allows her to watch UK TV shows that are blocked over here. It's not just the UK, you can browse like you're in the United States, or Germany, Japan, India, or dozens of other countries. It's dead, dead easy to use and super secure. Nothing is logged. It's all super private. TunnelBear's been used by more than 10 million people. I've been a paying subscriber for a couple of years, and my mom and brother too. Go to gettunnelbear.com, that's gettunnelbear.com, and create a free trial account. If you use that URL, TunnelBear will know that we sent you. Again, it's gettunnelbear.com. So thanks to TunnelBear for supporting this episode of Kane's Corner. Yeah, right. That, the, the hard part came next, right? Which is, which is yes. sort of, you know, um, figuring out uh, how to staff up because you wanted to deliver, you wanted to make movies much quicker um, in order for the business model to work. And you were looking at, like, hopefully you wanted to make Pixar to be making movies one, one a year. That was, well, yes, that was sort of the dream. I think, you know, eventually we settled on like one on 18 months, but um, but we ran, you know, the, the scenarios every every way. And, 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 and even at that schedule, you had to like t- uh, treble or even quadruple the staff. Yep, oh, definitely. Uh, um, and then, yeah, we had to go from like 150 people to, you know, 450, 500 people. And the real challenge was that, I mean, it, it doesn't maybe sound like a huge number of people, but the level of talent that those 
individuals needed to have on every front you know both you know whether it be technology animation story or production uh you know we were looking for the best people in the world and they are not easy to find right yeah yeah and uh yeah that you know there, there aren't schools that are turning out people like this and there aren't companies that have you know a lot of uh, we could go and find it. No. So, yeah, it was challenging. Um, also, uh, you know, uh, the stories as well, right? Generating the stories and working through them. Again, that, the story pipeline. The story, uh, that's the same thing. I mean, you know, John Lasseter was cultivating these tremendous storytellers. We know their names now, Andrew Stanton, Pete Doctor, Brad Bird. Uh, but at the time, they were young and they were unproven. They hadn't directed uh, feature-length films themselves, and they had been sort of mentored by John in the making of Toy Story and other Pixar projects, but they were unknown, but they were the source of the, the, the stories that would eventually, you know, become, uh, you know, the, the other films, Dory and Wally and uh, Monsters and Incredibles and all of that. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, the other big problem, I think, also was was the um, the contract with Disney. Yes, well, that was the you know there was no way that Pixar was going to have any commercial success under that contract, and so changing that contract became uh, absolutely you know, mission central for me and for Steve as well. And um, there was a lot of uncertainty around that, and obviously I, I go into the the story around that quite a bit. <laughs> Yeah, I was. You know, this is one of the things that, that struck me about the book. There's a whole chapter devoted to a to a, to a whiteboard meeting. <laughs> yes, and, and I, I don't mean to laugh, but I, you know, I don't think I've ever read a book um, that had a chapter like that. And but it's totally fascinating because it shows how you guys figured it out. It is, it does, and and you know, I, I, I that's exactly the reason I put it in there because I was like, you know, I can talk about the the issues on on negotiating that contract but what's sort of interesting you're like how do we talk this stuff through what do we actually do and and i thought you know that's exactly what we did and so i'm like well then that's that's what how i should write it and it's actually quite straight you know well i guess you know with with, with 2020 high when you read it you know it, it seems it's, it's very very straightforward really um no sort of none of this kind of alchemical, you know, magic that people think Steve Jobs has. It was just, you know, sort of laying out your position and the problems and talking it through. That's true when you sort of see it, but sometimes the process of getting there is requires going through an enormous number of permutations that you're not sure about. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. one of the examples that I give in the book are the discussions that we had over the Pixar brand. And, you know, you... you um, to, to sort of turn Pixar into a worldwide brand in entertainment, as opposed to sort of ceding some of that brand control to Disney, those things. There's a you know a lot of different sides to that, and which which which, which I describe. But so around all of those issues, there's a lot of discussion and debate before we kind of land on uh, on what makes the most sense. And then when you kind of see it, then uh, then it look you look at it and go, yeah, this is it. That makes a lot of sense. I think that definitely comes through in the book, you know, and that's what makes it so fascinating is because this is how the sauce gets made yeah and that's what I was trying to trying to convey you know just like this is this is yeah this is what happened <laughs> yeah yeah and uh, I, you know it, uh, and a lot of Steve books I'm sorry big puns you know books Steve Jobs books I think that you know don't they they don't you know they don't touch on that definitely that you know the biography um, of Steve Jobs I think a lot of people were disappointed that it didn't dig into his work life more uh, and I think this is exactly the kind of thing that people that readers would lap up you know about about that yeah, well, you know, I hope so. I'm one of, as I said, one of my reasons for writing it. I felt that in all the, I, I just felt that this story had become a little bit of an afterthought, and I also thought that uh, I, there weren't really many people to tell it. I'm probably the only one that could tell this particular story, uh, and and so if I if I didn't write it, it would it would never get told, and so that was part of the inspiration for writing it. <laughs> Well, great, and um, so th th uh, th th there was a you know the renegotiating with Disney, getting at because you were held into a three movie contract, um, and um, it 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 it, uh, it was such an onerous contract. It, it you know it it really had to be re renegotiated, and you wanted to have a number of things uh, that were changed, which was like a, an equal share of profits, equal billing. Um, uh, I forget the other. What were the other terms now? The branding was very important in there as well. Mm -hmm. And this is this is what Disney didn't like was it they didn't want to build they didn't want to help build Pixar into a potential rival exactly 
Right, and you couldn't blame them. Um, you know, that was, to, you know, I, I got that completely. So there was the sort of tension in the relationship. You know, they, they certainly wanted access to the to the um, uh, films that Pixar was making, but then they didn't want to create what could become their worst enemy if an arrival in animation. And so on the other side, you know, from our side, we were worried that Disney would invest in their own computer animation capability, which they were doing. And and then if they built that up successfully, they would just cut Pixar off eventually with and, and leave us sort of with nothing while they um, it, you took computer animation and um, to themselves. And so those are the kinds of tensions that make those negotiations challenging. Yeah, and um, you, you, it, in the book you described that you had quite a lot of success initially uh, renegotiating the contract, and, and, and you describe really well exactly what goes into it and, and what a huge undertaking it is, looking at every contingency and eventuality um, and spelling out really, really clearly exactly what everything means. Um, but it came down to the cold branding, wasn't it? Disney did not want to um, uh, help build up Pixar's brand. And you guys walked away because um, you didn't want to to, uh, to compromise on that. Yeah, that's right. We walked away in, in, you know, maybe the boldest decision that we made because uh, uh, we had sort of done well on all the other issues. That's when, uh, that's when those sort of challenges come like you know you develop your positions and then you have to face you know am I going to stick to my position it was my position built on bravado or was it built on uh, a <laughs> substance that I'm, I'm willing to live by and that's a great example of that and um, you know it, it 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 ended up working out but it doesn't always work out and so uh, th- those are the risks in doing those things so that particular choice was was you know, one of the one of the most important ones. That's why I use that as an example in there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And it was surprising because you you did walk away, and then Eisner came back. Uh, 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 Michael Eisner, that that the uh, CEO of Disney, came back a few weeks later and tried to and conceded that point. He he was willing to give um, Pixar co- equal co-branding with with Disney. Yeah, that's right. It was a little while later, and then that opened the gates to actually finishing that deal. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so that and that that of course. Uh, will, how big an impact do you think that had on on Pixar? Was that that was, you know? I think that was the. Th- I I couldn't even. Uh, um, eat. That was the pivotal moment. I mean, besides the films being successful, of course, uh, um, that opened up Pixar to become a viable entity on its own. Uh, uh, for sure, and to you know, to get the rewards from its work product, to have the world understand that it was Pixar behind these products. So all of those sort of commercial um, marketing branding doors just in one foul swoop with that contract, that new contract were, were open for Pixar, and then the way was clear to just execute on the plan that that, that we had built for increasing the output. <laughs> Right, and and of course, you know, you know, ten years and ten movies later, it, it has been phenomenally successful. Yeah, it it it, it was inc- it was an absolutely and still is an absolutely incredible run. <laughs> yes, right, absolutely, and um, uh, you know, the uh, the next step was was selling Pixar t- to Disney. Yeah, and and you described quite well, um, you know, how that came about. But it was because you, you were initially worried about the stock price. It was so high that you thought that any um, any mistake, any stumble, uh, a movie that didn't perform as well as expected would would decimate the stock price. Right. I mean, it had built up and up and up, and and you know that's a place where companies that have that level of success normally think about some form of diversification. So that will sometimes take the form of acquiring companies so they can expand their businesses into different areas. Um, other times, it takes the form of being acquired by a company, um, but. Uh, when you have a, a stock price with that amount of value in it and that much risk in it, then that's you know often a reason to to sort of stimulate some kind of action. Right. Yeah. You know, you mentioned earlier on that that Disney himself had, had you know couldn't make a business out of running just an animation studio. He had to diversify into into um, into other areas like theme parks. Why, why, why didn't uh Pixar do that? We looked at it over the years. You know, we, in fact, some of that I report in the book when we looked at the live action business. But, um, you know, if you looked at the businesses that Walt Disney went into, he went into live action film, he went into film distribution with Buena Vista Pictures, he went into television, he went into theme parks. And the, the, so those are obvious businesses to look at. But those are extremely difficult businesses to get into today. 
Um, <laughs> so, you know, film distribution and theme parks, you know, for example, would, would film distribution is probably impossible to get into today. You know, the major studios have had a lock on that, um, you know, for half a century. So, and unless you went into a different technology, uh, and theme parks would be the same. You know, you can imagine it would probably cost billions of dollars to, to create a theme park today. So, some of those areas of of diversification weren't uh, weren't accessible or weren't available. So we did explore those things, but nothing ever bubbled up to the surface uh, with the conviction that said we should do it. So the, the alternative was to, was to try to find a buyer. The alternative would be it was to try to find a buyer because then you diversify basically your Pixar investment into the assets of the of the buyer. And, and, yeah, and if you become part of a larger, more diversified company, there's you know the the the, uh, there's the, the risk is is spread out. The over risk it. is spread out, right? Yeah. So were, were there any other potential candidates? Was you know we talked about them, but you know in some ways it's like you know the relationship with Pixar and Disney was almost destined to end that way I think um, you know they were and not just the commercial relationship but the creative relationship the relationship that existed on the creative side between John and the other directors and their um, uh, sort of collaborators at, at Disney had been so rich over the years uh, so you know I would say it wasn't that we wouldn't have looked at anyone else I, I'm quite sure we would it was just that Disney was the sort of obvious place to start and mm -hmm. you know they had a new CEO and Bob Iger and so there was a new regime and so it was an opportunity to take a fresh look at the relationship and and so that's so we we started there and it sounds like it was relatively painless relatively it was and you know I credit Bob Iger with that he he from the moment you know we met him you know he had the because there were times you know where i think in the previous years when we wondered you know was disney interested in animation anymore they had diversified mm -hmm. a lot themselves and so you know and, and of course there was a lot of uh, challenges with, between roy disney and michael eisner and a well-documented history uh where roy disney was you know fearful that the animation was the heart and soul of the company and and um was had, had been neglected or or whatever his feelings were and but from the moment um that bob Iger was there uh, he was unequivocal that animation was the heart and soul of the company and mm -hmm. and that it was an extremely high priority and and he saw in pixar a solution to that to that problem to inject disney animation with you know, it sort of re-injected with the magic that, that it had had for, you know, for so many years before. And so that was really refreshing. And, you know, I, I think that he made us believe that he was really sincere about that. And that's what made, I mean, it was still a, a negotiation and a big acquisition. There was a lot of issues, but that's the thing that um, fueled it, that enabled it to go smoothly. Yeah, it was, uh, you had a, a good uh, passage describing how um, you, uh, Pixar was fearful that that um, Disney would would meddle and interfere with with um, uh, with, with Pixar and, and and its movies, and and Bob Iger said just exactly the opposite. Yes, he wanted to and so and, and this happens in in negotiations, and people will say that, but sometimes it's n not easy to live by that in the aftermath of an acquisition. But I think Bob uh, made us. Just made us believe it that he he was sincere about it and and most importantly you know Steve had really connected with him well and and trusted him on that and um, and then he totally came through on that and so we you know our trust was well placed and uh, of course now uh, Ed Catmull is the president of Disney Animation and John Lasters the creative head of yes. both studios and 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 Disney now just with Frozen wasn't it with the most Yes, yes. I mean, and this is tremendous. You know, it's just a great success all around. I mean, the, the the success of that acquisition has been incredible from any measure, both by the performance of both Disney Animation and Pixar Animation after the acquisition, and of course by the stock price. If if someone had been a Pixar stockholder in 2006 and converted into Disney stock at that point, they would have enjoyed you know a, a, <laughs> yeah. a huge run up over the next few years, which I think Steve personally uh, did enjoy. Well, right. That's exactly. What happened to Steve? He uh, he owned just what over just over fifty percent of Pixar yeah. stock at the time of the acquisition. Mm -hmm. So it, overnight he became worth overnight, uh, yeah, several billion dollars. Mm -hmm. And then uh, with Disney stock uh, uh, tripling or quadrupling yep. over that time, it it it, uh, it made him uh, him and uh, well, unfortunately, and now his widow yes. uh, even even richer. Yeah. 
So, um, of course, you know, at the time, and then uh, Apple was going gangbusters. Your path said, because um, you were close friends, weren't you, during the whole time you were at Pixar? We were. We were, and after, uh, we were. I think our collaboration was kind of based on sort of friendship first, in a way. <laughs> And you lived a few doors away. We not uh, a few doors, a few streets, but but uh, uh, but you know, sort of a five five minute walk. <laughs> so you would uh, walk over there quite frequently. Carl? Yeah, yeah, very often. Uh, very many uh, weekends, um, I would walk over, or Steve would come over, and it'd be like we would go for a walk, and we would talk about all of this. It was dialogue on all these Pixar issues, and and then it would spill over to sort of personal and other issues as well. But it was one of the ways we we communicated. You, you say um, that it, it, uh, you started to draw apart a little bit after the Disney acquisition. Um, is that correct? Oh, well, I say that, you know, Steve, I sort of, you know, we we went on to kind of do different things. I went to sort of the quiet world of meditation and Eastern philosophy, and Steve went on to, you know, this, you know, uh, unprecedented success, of course, at Apple. And, you know, and then, you know, he... You know, he enjoyed after that. You know, relationships with pretty much every any celebrity, anybody in, in the world, and uh, and him, and of course he was running Apple, which was which was a huge task. And so, um, in that sense, you know, he he we were doing different things. We would still come together for sort of walks and talks um, uh, fairly often, but um, but he was also off doing you know, do, doing this big grand thing with Apple while I was off doing this uh, much quieter uh, undertaking. There's a nice passage in the book where you describe, when you tell him that you were interested in in, in, um, in stepping down from Pixar and spending more time to studying um, Eastern um, religion. Uh, and um, what did he say? Well, Steve is, um, he's, he was very supportive of what I was wanting to do. I, he, he said to me at one point he was glad that one of us was doing that. Um, you know, because I think Steve had a strong um, sort of inclination or interest sensitivity to those kinds of ideas as well. He, he um, but he, at, this, at that time in his life, was uh, still in that, you know, corporate, um, sort of that corporate warrior mode, if you will, and um, whereas that other kind of work is a little more inward, is a little more quieter, and so, uh, but I, but he had an appreciation for it, no question about that, uh, so that was great. Right, um, did, was there, a, you know, wistful was he wistful about it? Was it I wouldn't was he... say wistful. Um, I, I think that um, I'd say he appreciated it, but you know I think he felt that his contribution and was happening at Apple, that he was um, both leading Apple and also teaching others at Apple, uh, you know, how to do great work in the hope that, in the regard, you know, if something happened to him or if he couldn't continue, that, that Apple would continue. So I think he got enormous... Uh, satisfaction um, from that, no question from, about it. Right, from what he was doing, yeah. yeah. So the, the last couple of chapters of the book are very interesting. When you when you say that you, you know you started studying um, the the middle way, yes. and you had this realization that that Pixar was actually the embodiment of that. Can you can you describe that and, and what exactly it means? Well, you know, I went off because I, I had a great career and I enjoyed my career immensely. I look back at it with great pride, but I felt there was also a certain kind of one-dimensionality to it because we live in a very sort of performance-oriented world and culture and acquisition at all costs uh, tends to be the, um, the mode in which we do things. And we can pay a sort of toll for that in terms of our peace of mind and equanimity and uh, stress, those kinds of things. And I wanted to go off and explore and, and, um, uh, and understand what, what that was all about. The Middle Way is a philosophy that is a deep philosophy, has 2,000-year-old roots, but in some ways it says that you know, there are two sides to life, and in one side you can think of is the side where we just have to get things done. We have to function well. It's like the bureaucratic side. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. there's a person inside of us that's like the bureaucrat that's responsible for, you know, making sure we wake up on time and, and you know, catch planes on time and take care of business. Uh, and that's sort of one person inside of us. And then there's another person inside of us that... Uh, really just wants to feel that they're alive, feel sort of joy and creative and vital and um, and, and have that just experience of, of 
sort of taking in and feeling the vitality of life. And uh, very often, if we sit in just one of those two places, then we can become frustrated because if life is only about function and getting things done, and then we may wonder one day if we ever lived. And if life is only about, you know, sort of smelling the roses, so to speak, then we may be frustrated because we have sort of lack of momentum. And at least from a, as a metaphor, you can look at Pixar and say that it really pulled together the harmony between those two things. You know, it managed to preserve its creative spirit while putting enough strategy and business and and uh, around that creative spirit to give it momentum as a company and i think both in terms of building corporate cultures that are doing really creative work and innovative work and in terms of even building building lives that that don't suppress that uh, sort of creative joyful instinct finding that harmony is really important <laughs> Yeah, you said when you, when you first got there, it was very much like the starving artist, which is you know the sort of the the the, the sensation seeking side of yes, the, uh, it, yes, and and the, the Pixar became you know a, a good um, blend of the two. Uh, it, 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 it remained artistic and creative, but it also had the discipline, the business discipline to to. to uh, you know, to, to put out movies and, and make money to keep, to, yeah. to, to keep going. And it's not my experience there. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is that it's, that's a, not an easy balance to pull off, uh, <laughs> right. both in, in terms of business and in terms of life. But it's sure worth the effort uh, because when you can pull something like that, that off, you know, you really um, have a level of kind of vitality and creativity that, that I, I think can be extraordinary. So what are you involved in now, Lawrence? Uh, well, I, I pursued this line. I started a foundation with four other individuals in 2003 called the Juniper Foundation, and its goal is to bring these systems of thought and meditation from from uh, East. To, it has all these have sort of Indo-Tibetan roots going back 2,000 years, and uh, our mission is to is can we embed those ideas in contemporary life and help to bring about this kind of harmony for a world that although it's very prosperous seems to be starved of um, that other dimension and it's so single-pointedly sort of focused on acquisition and consumerism and and uh, and technology that it can forget kind of this other side and mm -hmm. it's not about taking away the the drive for you know prosperity and success but it's about harmonizing it with this other other dimension and so that's become kind of a um, you know my uh, the passion my movie if you will uh, uh and that will that that's generational work it's not sort of five years and then an ipo it's a uh, um so i've spent a lot of time studying with my teacher who's a buddhist master and a lot of time developing with this without juniper team and the content and the materials and the means to to gain this kind of balance and so that's um that's where i'm focused and and I'm also interested in bringing that kind of thinking also into corporate paradigm. I think um, corporations as well can get uh, and have gotten uh, sort of too one-sided in their mentality and could also, you know, we could benefit from more harmony in that realm as well. So, uh, you know, I hope to do some work in that in that area as well. So how can people find out more information about Juniper? Well, they could go to, um, uh, we have a website, juniperpath.org, uh, or you can also get there from my website, lawrencelevy.com. Either way, we'll, we'll lead you in. Great. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll be sure to include those, uh, those links. Thank you very much. In, in a post. Um, what, uh, is there anything else that you would like to, to talk about? Oh, that's a good question. Um, what about you? Any lingering thoughts or questions? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, we covered, uh, you know, a lot of the material of the book. It's coming out on November 5th. It comes out November 1st. First, beg your pardon. Yeah, okay. and we're launching it in uh, Ke at Kepler's in Menlo Park. I thought that was a very appropriate, you know, right in the middle of Silicon Valley. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At, um, and um, it... Uh, You've got some good blurbs. Yeah, no, it's been wonderful, actually, really wonderful. I've had some some great feedback. You know, I mostly wanted to write something that that I felt proud about, that really captured to the best of my ability what happened, and uh, that's the most that I could ask of myself. That was uh, a very challenging undertaking, and and uh, but I felt like I got there, and so now I'm really sort of happy to share it and enjoying the responses. <laughs> 
I see in the, in the acknowledgments you, you thanked um, uh, Steve Jobs' daughter, uh, Chris Ann Brennan. That's Lisa Brennan. Chris Lisa Ann Brennan, was, was Lisa's yeah. mom. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, got it. Lisa yeah. Brennan Jobs. Um, that's right. I, you know, I've known Lisa for a very long time. I knew her as a teenager when she was first staying at Steve's house, and I would go over there on, on our walks. And so we've become very close over the years, and, um, and so she's been a big supporter of this project. And, you know, everybody, the, all the main characters in the book um, read the, had a chance to read the book while, while it was in development. Uh, uh, and Lisa too had a chance to read it um, you know, while it was in development, and so you know she's been a, a great friend and a, and a and a great supporter. <laughs> great. Okay. Well, I think he's definitely succeeded. I, I find it fascinating. I appreciate it. I really do. Yeah. Um, coming from you as well, because I know you have a lot of experience in 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 uh, in in this realm. <laughs> did you, Did you like writing? I mean, to. to uh yeah, it's a, that's a that's a great question. I love writing. I mean, I say that even though it's the most painful thing. Um, I <laughs> I look back at my life. You know, you know, when I was a lawyer, I would write seventy-five page contracts from like uh, from from scratch, like on a white sheet of paper, because we were doing mm -hmm. deals that had never been done before. And the writing side of it was always something I took great pride in. And so, you know, you can write a legal contract, you can write a prospectus for the SEC, you can write about a meditation philosophy, and and um, there's an art to it. And so I like struggling with that art. You know, in this one, I'll share with you, because, you know, as a fellow writer now, um, I didn't really know how to write in this style. I mean, this has dialogue, yeah, right. and, it, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. like an adventure story. And so my A, I... I talking to my agent about this and he said that you know he would get me someone I put him in the acknowledgments uh, he's at the top of the acknowledgments but that would help coach me into um, writing this way and so he put me in touch with this gentleman called Jamie Malinowski who has been a writer for a long long time and um, oh my goodness working with him was the most humbling experience I think I've had in, in years <laughs> if not decades at one point I said to my wife I was like I don't care about the book anymore. I just want a gold star from Jamie. <laughs> uh, and when Jamie, and I put that in the acknowledgments, and when Jamie saw the final copy of the book a few days ago, he wrote me and said, you got a, a universe of gold star, 